we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers, and welcome back. I cannot wait to share the conversation I have for you today. But first, I want to remind you to please subscribe to the podcast and also rate and review it in whatever app you use to listen to Historical Fiction Unpacked. We would also love to have you join us in the Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast group on Facebook and in our Patreon community. If you feel so inclined, please check out the benefits there at patreon.com slash Treat. A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. Now today, I have a conversation for you with another librarian. Last week, we talked to Candace Sue Patterson, who was a children's librarian. This week, I am sharing a conversation with Elizabeth Camden, who is a research librarian at a small college in Central Florida. Her novels, which you may have heard of, have won the coveted Rita and Christie Awards. And she has published several articles for academic publication, and she's the author of four nonfiction history books. So her ongoing fascination with history and her love of literature have led her to write inspirational fiction. You guys are going to love this conversation with Elizabeth. So I will not keep you any longer with any more descriptions. I will just let you enjoy without further ado. Elizabeth, I'm so glad you could join me on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, I want to discuss several of your recent novels, um, beginning with a trilogy that released over the last few years called the Hope and Glory series. So, so far, I've read the first installment, The Spice King, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Can you tell me about this series? Oh, sure. Um, The series is set in Washington, D.C., and it's about three siblings. The old, and each one has their own novel. And mm. um, the oldest sibling is the one featured in The Spice King. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, I actually had this title in mind from the very beginning. Usually titles happen at the very end with yes. your publisher. But I wanted to write a novel about a, um, a business tycoon in the spice industry. And so The Spice King just sounded like a great title. And I based it on, um, there was a, what was called a food explorer. His name was David Fairchild in the 19th century. The diet of Americans in the 19th century was very bland. We didn't have many seasonings or spices or sweeteners. And uh, our vegetables were very plain. Anyway, David Child searched the world all through the Far East and Africa and Russia Mm looking for crops that could be adapted to the environment of the United States. And so I loosely based my hero on David Fairchild. And then um, the, as a series, it's set in, um, it's about 1899 to 1905 is the time frame of the series. So a lot's going on in there. So the mm-hmm. Spice King is about this quest to diversify the American diet. The second book is um, the woman, the heroine, works inside the White House. She is part of the McKinley administration. So there's a whole lot of White House politics and what it was like to work and live in the White House. And then the third book is about um, 
it wraps it up with some <clears throat> government legislation to protect the food industry. So that's what the series is, and it's set in Washington. Each book can be read totally independently. Yeah. So um, I recently, my kids kind of roped me into watching the series, The Food That Built America, or wow. part of it. I don't, I haven't finished it yet, but, but the beginning of that, when I read The Spice King, it kind of brought that to mind because that's a little bit about food purity and, and how we didn't have any regulation at that time. So, um, can you tell me more about the role that, um, the government and then, like you said, Good Housekeeping Magazine played a a role in that too, in, in shaping food? food purity standards. Right. Well, well, let me back up just a smidge. Okay. Um, Washington, D.C., obviously, that's where the federal government is. Mm-hmm. In, the ni- in the late 19th century, the federal government really was expanding very quickly. After the Civil War was over, uh, the country as a whole started earning a lot more money. Government started expanding. And one of the reasons I set so many of my novels in Washington, D.C., is that there were so many great opportunities for women to work in professional positions in Washington. During the Civil War, they brought women in to do a whole lot of the secretarial and clerical work. And then after the war was over and the soldiers came home and wanted their jobs back, the women didn't really leave They made it more jobs (laughs) and more research institutes and more um, office work. Yeah. Part of that was the Department of Agriculture. Um, We were an agricultural nation. We needed research to figure out how best to grow crops, how to store them, how to transport them throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And so the Department of Agriculture not, you know, much more than just teaching people how to farm, they developed uh, safe canning procedures. Um, And food purity started becoming really big because there were no laws on a national level about could you adulterate sugar with um, fillers? Could you adulterate Mm -hmm. milk? Milk was a big one that got adulterated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only with fillers like ground up chalk, because they Uh. would water the milk down which would obviously make it sort of translucent. You could disguise that by putting in uh, powdery fillers like chalk. Um, Well, yeah. Or the other problem with milk was purity because it would go bad. And so there were things like you could put a few drops of formaldehyde in it to preserve Mm -hmm. it. So on the Mm -hmm. one hand, you're trying to stop it from going bad, but people are drinking formaldehyde. And Mm, was that good or bad or healthy? We didn't know. So the uh, Department of Agriculture did start uh, laboratories, scientific laboratories, to test the purity and start developing uh, laws and legislation. This was a decades-long process. Um, And in The Spice King, we start touching on that. And the heroine, who begins the novel as a botanist for the Smithsonian, ultimately starts working at the, um, the uh, Department of Agriculture in one of these labs that tests for food purity and food hardiness. Um, Good Housekeeping does play a role in The Spice King, the magazine. Uh, it was founded in Boston, and it started mostly as a, as a magazine for housewives, you know, how to clean laundry, how to starch your collars and all that. But they had a lab 
where they started testing food and recipes and procedures for effectiveness. Um, So they were looking at canned food and making sure if you opened up a can of baked beans, was it really just baked beans? And if it wasn't, Mm -hmm. if there was fake stuff in there or fillers, they would expose it in the magazine. They developed the good housekeeping seal of approval, which is still going to this day. To this day, when I am looking to buy a new toaster or something like that, I Google good housekeeping um, and see what they have to say about the products. So I have a scene in the novel where they do go up and look at the uh, kitchens of good housekeeping and deal with the editors and how good housekeeping helped publicize the need for food purity. In fact, they were rather political in at this period. They were driving the government to create national standards. And um, so it was fun to include um, just a, a brief tip of the hat to good housekeeping in this book. Yeah, I love that you included that. That's that's really interesting because I would, I never, well, there are just so many things in this book that I really hadn't thought about. Like I mentioned that I had heard about how um, deplorable the food p- purity was in the yeah. U.S. at that time. But um, I didn't know about good housekeeping's role in that. And I did not know, I didn't know much about the Spanish-American War either or um, the presidency of McKinley. So this is... I love it when I can pick up a book and I, I learn something and I'm inspired to go and, and learn more about it. So I, I just think, I also think it's interesting that there are these pockets of history that are not as explored as, I mean, there are so many popular books that are set during World War II. Right. Yeah. And well, I mean, that's understandable. Right. There's so much in that period of time, but I think that sometimes we neglect the, right. the lesser known events or the, the lesser known, the periods of time when, things were actually happening. Right. Yeah. We don't know as much about it. It was, you know, the 19th and early 20th century was just such a huge era of innovation, Mm -hmm. Um, scientific, artistic, cultural, everything technological. Um, In my other job, um, I was a librarian for gosh, almost 30 years. Um, And I was, I was a college research librarian. And one of the things you do is you delve into old archives a lot And there were a few years in my career where I was working with government reports. So that's why I became so familiar with old government agencies. And I would go through the stacks looking at these dusty old volumes from the Smithsonian or the Department of Agriculture. um, And I would look at what they were talking about 50, 70, 200 years ago. It was fascinating. And that's when you stumble, that's when I would stumble across really cool historical events that were going on. And I think that it really gave me an an advantage as a writer in that I would find these cool details. Like when I was looking through these old agriculture reports and they would have these photographs that were taken, taken in like the 1890s and they would show these laboratories. And a lot of the people in the labs were women. And they've got their, you know, their big, long, dark dresses, but there they are with test tubes and beakers carrying out yeah. research. 
And it's like, wow, women did that back then? And I would want to know more. And so I'd plow around. And if I'm looking for a subject for a book, I don't want to go to something. I don't want to compete with something that has been covered so heavily. And so Mm -hmm. I have been able to find some really cool, interesting historical tidbits to explore. Yes. So what exactly inspired this series? Was it um, just that? title idea and that you wanted to write something about David Fairchild? Yeah, well, um, I have gone through a phase where I wanted to write trilogies. Mm. I got to tell you that phase is starting to come to an end. I'm in the end of my third trilogy, and I think I'm going to go back to standalone titles. But but for a while, I was very much wrapped up in doing trilogies because I wanted the chance to really get to know some characters. Mm. Mm -hmm. And tackle a big complicated topic now i always have i I write romance novels let's just put that out there my novels are very romantic always Mm -hmm. have a really deep turbulent love story that drives the story and there's going to be three romances you know one romance per book in the trilogy Mm -hmm. i tend i almost always set my novels either in new york city or Washington, D.C., because these are the places that I can find interesting careers for women, realistic Mm -hmm. careers. I don't personally have any experience out on farms or on ranches. A lot of novels in the inspirational genre are set on farms and ranches. I don't want to touch it because Mm -hmm. I don't have the experience or the authority to write about it. So I write about women in laboratories or in college campuses or in professional positions in the city. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go back to Washington, D.C. And I wanted to deal with, as I said, David Fairchild and his his work as a food explorer kind of gave me the idea. And so the trilogy is bookended by, in the first book, the Spice King and how he is bringing spices and seasonings and um, bottling and selling them. And there's some conflict he has with the federal government. He is a hard nosed businessman. He doesn't Mm -hmm. want the government telling him what to do, how or why to do it. He runs a good operation, a clean operation. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't like people telling him what he can do. So he has some conflict with the heroine who works for the Department of Agriculture and is invested in various aspects of the food industry. Right. And then by the time we get to the end of the trilogy in 1906, this is the start of the Pure Food and Drug Act. Mm -hmm. And basically they have won this 10-year-long battle to create pure food and pure drugs And one of the things I liked about having the luxury of this 10-year time span was a lot of times we underestimate what we can do. I'm sorry, we overestimate what we can do in one year, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. I mean, if you're doing a really big, hard project, it's hard to accomplish much in the space of one year. But in 10 years, you know, if you have a big goal... And these characters have big goals, big dreams. Um, I needed that 10-year time frame. 
and I set it in Washington to deal with this issue. And one of my challenges was how do I make each novel have a fulfilling beginning, middle, and end? Right. So that you can pick up any one of these three books in any order. You won't feel uh, like you're picking up the story in the middle or you're, that you're lost and you don't have the background. Each book should be can be read on its own. But if you do read them in order, you're going to trace this development of um, the food industry from the very, you know, when they start first toying with making people obey the legislation coming out of the Department of Agriculture until 1906, when the Pure Food and Drug Act is finally passed. Right. Wow. Interesting. So since the release of that series, you have released the first in another series. Right which you mentioned that you are finishing up the last one, I think. But um, so Carved in Stone is the first installment. I would like to know about this novel and your inspiration for this series as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So my, my, third, my, my current trilogy, Carved in Stone, just came out in August. Um, this one's set in New York City. And it is a big, sprawling family drama set on Wall Street during Gilded Age America. And so my characters are kind of modeled after the Rockefellers and the J.P. Morgans. I love watching some of the old TV series like Dallas and Falcon's Crest and big family Mm -hmm. dramas with good guys and bad guys and a mix of history and romance and mystery. And I knew that I wanted to do something on Wall Street. in my other life as a business librarian, I was a business librarian, uh, <laughs> primarily. That's what I did. I worked with the MBA students on how to research industries. Wow. And so I've always enjoyed business. And as much guff as big business gets, it's what made America great. And so I wanted to do a, a trilogy set on Wall Street that shows the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm. Um, I tend to go through a lot of old newspapers, old magazines, and old memoirs to get some realistic feeling and some realistic story ideas. One of the things that happened in Gilded Age America was there were some terrible kidnappings of children Mm. of the very rich. Now, usually when people hear about that, they go straight to the Lindbergh baby, which happened in the 1930s. Uh, But that was a big case that has stuck in our historical memory. But -hmm. there were lots of children who were kidnapped. And one case in particular caught my interest. It was the child of a uh, cattle baron in Oklahoma. And he received a ransom for the boy. And uh, he was, the the police recommended that he not pay it. the boy was never seen again. Oh my goodness. And they never knew what happened to him. So he did pay the ransom. He, he he eventually got to the point where he was like, I'm ready to pay. Well, by then the kidnappers had gone silent and the boy was never. Mm. And that case has gone down. That was just one of those unsolved mysteries. And so that was the, I thought, wow, what a story. What if, you know, let's just fill in all the possibilities that could have happened there. And so yeah. I used that what if as the basis for the first book in the trilogy. 
Mm-hmm. And I can't really go into it more without delving into spoiler territory. Right. But, um, so the, the novel is about this family that the oldest son had been kidnapped 30 years before the, the novel starts. All the characters, you know, the parents are now dead. The brothers and sisters of this kidnapped child are adults. Um, and they all still live on Wall Street. They're all still very wealthy. But mysteries from the past are going to come to rear their ugly head. And then the trilogy is launched at that point. Um, and again, this this um, trilogy, each book will stand on its own. And right. so the first one is out. And it has a satisfying romance and a satisfying ending. And then the mm-hmm. second book is going to deal with um, financing the railroads, um, and in particular, the Trans-Siberian Railroad. So the second book, which I'm really excited about because I've finished writing it, but it's not coming out until next spring. Um, That one is going to be my first internationally set book dealing with Russia and the United States. But it's too early to start talking about that one. (laughs) This is a taste for those, for folks who are maybe not familiar with my writing style. I um, I do cover a lot of territory in my novels. I always base it on real technological advancements. Um, I tend to do that more than wars or more than a specific historical event. I tend to do it on technological, scientific, or cultural advancements. Mm-hmm. And, but, but at the heart is a romance because I grew up cutting my teeth on romance novels. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of, for me, the most fun. Right. I don't want to um, share any spoilers about Carved in Stone, but I um, I was really intrigued by the setting, not just New York City, but the, um, the heroine lives on a college campus in New York City. And I wanted to know about the inspiration for that particular college. It's not a real, it's a fictional right. institution, uh- but... The, uh, it's a fictional college. I called it Blackstone College. And I alluded in the book that it is similar to, say, Vanderbilt University or Carnegie Mellon. These mm-hmm. are colleges that were founded by robber barons with these huge... Duke is another one, Duke University. Yes. These are... Uh, we, we had incredibly wealthy robber barons, and they wanted to clean up their reputation. And they often founded colleges as a way of doing that. Well, the college that I based Blackstone College on is the Rockefeller Institute, founded by mm-hmm. J.D. Rockefeller. And it was not, Rockefeller Institute was not a traditional college. It was mostly a research institute with um, scientists. But thank God for them because they, they dedicated their research to things that would not necessarily make money quickly. A lot of times with pharmaceutical companies, they're looking for a cure for something that they can market and sell and get rich off of. And, you know, more power to them. We, right. <laughs> uh, but sometimes there are diseases where there's not a lot of money attached to it or the hope of finding a cure is so slim that it's not worth a private corporation's risking, you know, their a huge amount of money onto the research. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the Rockefeller Institute did in real life. Um, one of the things that they did was they developed antibiotics in the early 20th century. They, um, they really w- took the lead in developing a lot of antibiotics. And by the 1930s, thank goodness, they had antibiotics ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, World War II would have been a much darker war had it not been for people who had been injured in battle to be able to uh, fight off infection. And we owe that, a lot of those antibiotics, to the Rockefeller Institute. And um, so I... Uh, for for my fictional novel, I created the uh, the Blackstone College, which is similar to the Rockefeller Institute, and in that that's what they're also doing. They're trying to cure diseases that other people aren't looking at because it's just too difficult. Right, right. That's another little uh, piece of history that I don't know if a lot of people understand. So that's great that it comes out in this novel too. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so tell me more about your research and writing process. You, I mean, you're a professional researcher, right? <laughs> so, um, well, you know, I always loved reading. I think most writers do. I never thought about writing a novel until pretty late in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a college librarian for 30 years, and I usually mm-hmm. worked on college campuses, which meant I had to go after tenure. Um, long story there. Um, I, but I would do research. I was at Ohio State for a long time. And then I went to, um, I was at Indiana University. I was a, at a little college in Florida called Rollins College. Mm-hmm. And in all of these, you are, there's a lot of pressure to do research, which I did. And I did get tenure and I did enjoy my tenure. It was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there comes a point where it's like, is that all? You know, I thought, yeah. why not try to write a novel? Um, and why not try to capitalize on the things that I know how to do well, which is research. And I mm-hmm. love romance novels. Um, I didn't want to write the kind that you see in the grocery store on the end racks with Fabio on the cover and all that. I wanted to write something that um, the kind of novels that I like to read where you learn something. Um, I love historical fiction. Yeah. Um, because I, I do want something more substantial than just a love story. Mm-hmm. I want there to be really big stakes in a novel. So they're fighting over something really important, uh, like the purity of food and drugs or like the creation of a medicine. Right. Um, and in terms of how I do my, um, my research and forming up an idea of what to write, it's usually when I'm reading old newspaper articles or old magazines, and I come across something that makes me say, I wish I knew more about that. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when I read about that kidnapped boy in Oklahoma, oh, I wish I knew more about that. Or when I read the biography of David Fairchild and what it was like when he would spend more than a decade abroad all over the world, collecting seeds and fruits and figuring out how do I transport these alive back home in the 19th century before they had refrigeration. And I would think, I wonder what that was like for him when he would step off the boat back in Washington, D.C. after living in a tent in North Africa for for Mm -hmm. five years. What What would that be like? And so 
there I've got the inspiration for my hero. And, and so that's, that's usually how I would do it. I would just think, what would I like to know more about? You know? Mm -hmm. And and then I go. So I just, I also found like in the Spice King, since I've read, that's the novel I've read the entire thing, the intricacies of the plot, like, um, I don't want to give spoilers again, but it was perfectly set up that the heroine worked at the Department of Agriculture and how that played out with um, the hero and his family. I just wonder, do those things come to you as you're writing? Do you plot it out oh, carefully? I yeah, time? yeah. Um, I write by the seat of my pants. And oh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah. So originally, I was going to have her be entirely working for the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I got to do a whole lot of research into what it was like. Oh, and by the way, Smithsonian was great for hiring women and African Americans and other wow. minorities. In, you know that, that kind of makes sense when you are studying cultures from all over the world. But the Smithsonian has a yes. long and colorful history of hiring different types of people. And so I mm-hmm. thought, all right, so I'm going to have my she's my she's a botanist, mm-hmm. and uh, so she shares some interests with the hero. And I thought, I'm just going to have her work at the Smithsonian. Well, as a writer, you always want to have conflict between your characters. You can't have them be too much alike. You can't have them immediately respect and enjoy and love each other. (laughs) Um, You have to have conflict. Now, you do. I always want them to have them respect each other. And they usually like each other tremendously. But there has to be conflict. And so that's why I thought... Who is the worst? Who is the last person he would want to deal with? My hero. And mm-hmm. it would be a government employee who wants to get into his business and tell him what to do. Right. So that's why I decided, okay, I'll have her start at the Smithsonian, but she's going to get transferred over to the Department of Agriculture. And I have to leave myself open to all of that. I write and rewrite. I have so many drafts of every book. I am envious when I hear people say, oh, I wrote three drafts of this book. I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness. I'm on I what, ninth, tenth? I look at my file sometimes and I'll see version one, version six, version seven. And I usually I, I know that I do this. And so I when I schedule my time, I I put in enough research to be able to quickly shift courses. Mm-hmm. And I find that when you get a better idea that has more rich potential for delicious conflict, it makes the writing easier. Yes. And, um, if, if the, if I had kept her at the Smithsonian, I would have had one boring novel. <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm envious of people who plot also, cause I just, I, I work out the story in the writing. So, yeah. and then it, I just feel like it takes so much longer, but. It does. It does. I mean, I burn a lot of word count. Yeah. Uh, My dump file every time I'm writing and then I'm like, no, these two chapters have to go. (laughs) I I put them in a dump file because every now and then I'll come back and pull something back out of it. But my Mm -hmm. dump file is always as large as the finished product, you know? Yeah. Oh, yes. So you said you never thought about writing a novel until you were already tenured and and then the idea came to you. So how did you, what was your process? Um, How did you become a published author? Well, um, when I first started toying with the idea of writing a novel, 
Um, this was so uh, maybe 1995, 96 in there. Mm-hmm. This was before self-publishing. And yes. I, in a way, I feel like it was lucky for me that self-publishing was not an option. Um, however, I wrote five manuscripts, five complete novels that did not get published. Wow. So what I, you know, granted, some of those were contemporary romance. Some of them, a couple were historical, mm-hmm. um, but I did it the old fashioned way. I made Xerox copies. I went to Kinko's copies. I got a list from the library of agents who were accepting submissions. Mm-hmm. And I queried over and over and over and over. And um, it was my sixth novel that got an agent. And then it got a wow. publisher really fast. And wow. uh, I think I was lucky in that I had so much experience by then that when the publisher said, what else have you got? I was able to fairly quickly crank out more. Now, mm-hmm. those five failed manuscripts, those will probably never see the light of day um, because they, they were my practice novels. Um, right. I looked at them and I thought, is there any way I can salvage some of these? And I thought, no, um, those are in the past. I thank, thank goodness for them because I learned in the process. Um, I, I, I will confess that I was getting so discouraged towards the end that I thought if this book doesn't take manuscript number six, maybe I should just be done with this mm-hmm. and move on, do something else. Um, because it, it, it takes a lot out of you. Oh, writers put so much into a manuscript. Yes. So many. I mean, even when you're not writing, you're dreaming about it. You're going mm-hmm. to the park to research these plants or you're, it's hard to describe how all consuming it is when you're in the throes of a really wonderful writing project and right. then you risk putting it out into the world. And when you get nothing but negative feedback, it's tough. It's really mm-hmm. tough. Um, in each manuscript, the negative feedback got a little better. <laughs> Enough <laughs> for me to keep going. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, my first novel was published in 2011. Mm. And I've been doing about a novel every nine months ever since. Yeah, you have quite a few under your belt now. Yeah, yeah. So this is a question I ask all my guests. Mm-hmm. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Well, well um, it lets us experience different and interesting historical events like wars and tragedies, but all from a safe distance. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, we can read about World War II, but none of us have experienced it. It's not going to trigger anybody. Um I don't want to read about September 11th. I, I just don't. It's too neat. It's too near for me. Um, right. Been there, done that. Don't want to revisit it. But World War One, well, that's fascinating. The Chicago mm-hmm. fire, the San Francisco earthquake, fascinating. Um, I think when we read historical novels, we learn that there's nothing new under the sun. This is not our first pandemic. It's our first pandemic, but there have been plenty of others. Right. Um, There have always been wars. Um, There have been contested presidential elections. Mm -hmm. There has been racial strife. We've 
it's all been done before. Yeah. This may be the new first time for us, but we're going to get through it. We're going to be fine. This is part mm-hmm. of the growing process. We're going to get there. We're going to be better on the other side once we get through it. Right. Um, you know, another thing that I read about a long time ago about why fiction can be so powerful Um, There have been some academic studies about how the human mind processes information, like when they literally put the the nodes on people and study their brain heat maps as they think. People's brains work differently when they are consuming like a novel or a poem Mm -hmm. or music or watching a movie versus when they're watching the news or they're Mm -hmm. reading a, a news article. When you watch the news, your guard is up. You're a little yeah. skeptical. When you sink into a novel, you're more open. You're walking in somebody else's shoes. Um, you're seeing the world through another character's eyes. And they have said how powerful novels can be in changing the hearts and minds of people and making us more compassionate. Yes. Um, I think they, the number one example of this is Uncle Tom's Cabin, which mm-hmm. was written in the 1850s. Um, in the 1850s, people in America were well aware of the issue, issue of slavery. Uh, there were countless abolitionist newspapers. But Uncle Tom's Cabin inflamed people in a different way, like nothing else before, even though the characters were fictional. Right. So why is that? Academics have speculated that it's because when you're reading a novel, you let your guard down. It's easier to empathize with people who aren't like you. Mm -hmm. For a while, you're walking in somebody else's shoes. That doesn't happen when you're reading a newspaper or when you're watching the evening news. We sometimes it does, but we are more predisposed to be skeptical. Right. And um, so, you know, I didn't mean to, to go down that political avenue, but, but even with Christian fiction, um, it expands us. It expands yeah. our ability to be compassionate to people who aren't like us. Um, so, yes. No, I'm glad you did go down that, um, that road because... Um, I think that's fascinating. I I know I've heard this before, but but it's really um, it's something that not every not every guest pays attention to that part of the question. Why is what is it about the story that that makes it change us um, and and approach our our own lives differently? So yeah, I'm glad you brought that out. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I know that when I read a, a well-done historical novel, I feel broader. I feel like, mm-hmm. wow, I've learned something um, to make me appreciate uh, something more, you know? Yes. So. Yes. Well, Elizabeth, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Well, um, you know, the, uh, my books are available everywhere. Um, so, mm-hmm. and then elizabethcamden.com is my website. Um, the best way to follow me, though, is on Facebook. If you're into Facebook, I know not everybody is, but right. I am on Facebook every day. 
And every day I put out a historical topic, a little Mm. historical tidbit. Um, This is my way of just sort of, uh, because my books only come out every nine months, but I'd love to share my research along the way. So I'll put out a little curious story or a little, did you know this? Always dealing with uh, 18th or, I'm sorry, 19th or 20th century fiction, uh, uh, history. And I love it. People often chat with me online. Uh, mm-hmm. We have interesting conversations about whatever the topic of the day is. So Facebook um, uh, for Elizabeth, author Elizabeth Camden is probably the best way to keep in touch with me. But I've also got a newsletter. Um, all of those are easy, easy to find on Facebook or at my website, ElizabethCamden.com. Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. This has been really uh, delightful. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elizabeth Camden. I certainly did. Let me remind you to check out the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog, where you will find links to Elizabeth's books and um, other things of interest that we talked about on the show. So make sure you do not miss those. As usual, I'm going to leave you with a quote. And this comes from M. Scott Peck, who said, The whole course of human history may depend on a change of heart in one solitary and even humble individual, for it is in the solitary mind and soul of the individual that the battle between good and evil is waged and ultimately won or lost. So my friends, keep waging those battles as you read historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week.